You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 193. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we discuss three news articles related to archaeological metallurgy. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? Pretty good. You know, I'm back from Lagash, as you know, and uh, trying to, you know, wrap up everything that, <laughs> that I didn't take care of because I spent half the last year, you know, uh, running around all over the Middle East and, uh, you know, getting yeah. you know, stuff done around the house. I've been on kind of a creative kick lately. So I just like half an hour ago posted a 3D model for uh, GCPs for photogrammetry. Um, so oh, nice. we'll see if, uh, if those are useful. Yeah, that'd be really cool. And I've been, you know, doing some programming and other things. Uh, how have you been, Chris? Not too bad. Not too bad. We're, we're, as you're listening to this, we should be moving our way across the country from Charlotte, North Carolina, where we spent December and the last part of November. Actually, we're having an ongoing issue with our RV. I won't bore you guys with it, but it's a, a, diesel, a diesel leak in one of our systems. And they've torn this thing apart like four or five times because uh, we've been back to the factory in Alabama because it was on the way here. And mm-hmm. that's where you can get some really good you know, factory maintenance from the pros and the people that put it together. So... It's just crazy. It's it's a high pressure fuel thing, and they just they just can't find where this this fuel is leaking out of. And then when it does leak, we smell diesel up in the uh, up in the living room area, and it's just I mean it's just a it it's a crazy situation. Luckily, we don't need it right now. We've got three other sources of heat inside here. Even though in Charlotte, weirdly, it's going to be thirteen degrees tomorrow. Uh, I don't think it's ever been that cold here. I feel like we're in some sort of, you know, B movie like disaster scenario (laughs) where where the National Weather Service guy is like, I told you this was going to happen, you know. So anyway, we got lots of different sources of heat. That that one's only really useful if we're if we're off grid, then we actually need it. So and we're going to be off grid for. Well, the last half of last half of January and the entire month of February, and then much of March. <laughs> so we gotta yeah, get so this thing figured out. That heater, <laughs> January, yeah, February. exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, we'll be in some warmer areas. Like in in February, we're gonna be in Mexico, uh, like oh, okay. northern Mexico. So it'll be in like mm-hmm. the 60s. So uh, we probably won't need it there. Um, but we're still off grid, and we can't use our fireplace. We can't use our heated floors. We can use the electric side of our furnace, which runs on 12 volt. But still, you know, that that pulls our batteries down pretty significantly. So anyway, speaking of, you know, well, I guess I guess batteries kind of is a good segue because batteries are well, modern batteries, at least the ones we have are filled with lithium. Lithium's a metal, technically. And I was looking for some articles. There's a there's a little bit of a backstory here. Rachel, who has been on this, and she's my wife, and she, her, her and I do TAS, the archaeology show, and kind of the bread and butter of the archaeology show is we look for three news articles that are current in the news right now, you know, popular news articles that you may find just browsing the internet, looking at your Apple news feed or looking at your Google news feed, whatever the case may be. And it might just come across. You might not even be searching for it, those kinds of things. And we want to see what are people seeing when they see these articles and how are they either being told good information or being misled by the <laughs> reporter that interpreted <laughs> this either journal article or I find a lot of times that they're even citing other news outlets, right? They're not even doing their own research. They're like, according to The Guardian. What do you mean according yeah. to The Guardian? The Guardian didn't write this research. <laughs> so, yeah, I've noticed that a lot. That really drives me crazy. 
Isn't that insane? And they get mm-hmm. away with it because nobody cares. Nobody reads that part, right? So, but anyway, I was I was looking for articles that her and I were going to do a fill-in episode over here. We ended up not needing it, but we still had the research. So Paul and I decided to record this. And it just so happened, I found one article talking about doing studies on on metal sourcing and, and figuring out some things with metals. And then I found another one. And then I had to find a third one to kind of make it a theme. So the, the theme of this uh, episode is going to be current news articles about archaeology relating to something to do with metals, whether it be sourcing or, you know, something else. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah, no, I was looking at this when you sent me these three articles. I'm like, well, wait a sec. These are all archaeometallurgy or metallurgy. Did I just yeah. mispronunciate that? Hmm. Metallurgy. <laughs> yes. You put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> oh, rats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was looking at this and uh, well, I was going to say, obviously, I don't know a whole lot about uh, metallurgy, <laughs> but I think I just made that abundantly clear. And I was wondering if you have any uh, any background in it at all from, from your schooling. I have actually no background at all. I don't remember it even being discussed, to be honest with you, in my mm-hmm. master's degree or my my undergrad. It was just something that I don't know if it wasn't being applied as much, you know, 20 plus years ago, or if it wasn't. Or, or maybe there just weren't a lot of discoveries or maybe it wasn't being written about enough. I don't really know. I mean, I know that science has had the ability to do a lot of the things that we're going to talk about for a while, but I don't mm-hmm. know if they were being applied to archaeology. So, or at least maybe we just weren't aware of it. I don't know. Because because you you don't know a lot about it either, as you said. Yeah. Well, I was a peripherally, I know nothing about it really, but I was mm-hmm. very well aware of its existence because back in the day as a grad student, I worked at, uh, at MASCA, the Museum of Applied Science Center for Archaeology at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. And mm-hmm. down the hall from us were uh, a few people who made archaeometallurgy their, uh, their thing, a couple nice. of different metallurgy labs. So the terminologies that came up all the time, uh, mass spectrometry in particular, were around me daily, but I just didn't have any particular interest, so I didn't bother learning about it. Though I did find it interesting. One of these articles is actually one of the, the uh, co-authors was on my MA committee because he oh, was okay. one of those <laughs> researchers down the hall from me. <laughs> nice. That's an interesting, interesting coincidence. Yeah, though I still know nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually brings something up I wanted to mention in case in case this person is listening. We got some feedback from one of the episodes we recently did about food. There was a research article where some, you know, it was from Shannadar Cave in Iran, Iraq, Iraq, I think. Is that where Shannadar is? I can't remember. Iran, yeah, it's one of those two. And there was some research done there and basically burnt food remains and they were able to sort of walk back what these food remains are. And it was like prepared food. And that was really cool. And then the research, the, the journalist who actually reported on that, um, including the researchers, they did this too, but, but it wasn't talked about in the article. So the journalist that wrote the original article based on the research also wrote another article where she actually sourced equivalent materials as much as she could and, you know, ground them in a stone like mortar and pestle situation and then cook them Mm. on a like rock slab over a fire she made in her backyard. (laughs) So they were like these, they were like these grain patty sort of things. Well, we got an email from one of the original study authors and this person, you know, said, Hey, I just want to say, you know, thanks for covering this, but it would have been great to, you know, cite the original article or talk to me about it, you know, because we're never cited, names never mentioned, stuff like that. And I just wanted to first, I already emailed her back, but I wanted to say first, apologize for that because I don't want to mislead anybody. But 
to be honest with the T with TS, that's not really what we what we do. We do that on shows like Archaeotech. Like in some of these cases, we do have the original article and we will post those here. But TAS is more for I guess just just talking about the news articles, really, and really the focus is the journalist and and what they did. So, you know, along those lines, we'll do a little better in Archaeotech and we'll post as many sources as we can, because that's the kind of audience we have for Archaeotech. So along those lines, let's talk about the first article that we have here. And the article title is Mass Spectrometry Identifies Ancient Battlefield. And this is actually from, I don't know, it's from some news thing I'd never even heard of. I use Apple News and, and I do have a filter for archaeology where I can, you know, I can see that stuff. And this is from C2W International. No idea what that is. Yeah, I've never heard of them before. Yeah, but the URL is sciencelink.net. So I don't know what's going mm-hmm. on. The logo at the top is C2W International. And the URL is sciencelink.net. As of course, we'll have links to all this in the show notes. Um, the author is, I'm going to get the name wrong, Arjun Dijgraf. I don't know. Uh, you'll see it in the thing. Okay, so this one is actually kind of cool, though. So some of the nuts and bolts of this here, they found some Roman artifacts near the village of Kelkris in northern Germany. They used... Trace elements, uh, trace element analysis in these um, metal objects reveal that they belong to soldiers in the 19th Legion. That's exactly what we're talking about here. That's kind of the the mm-hmm. the bread and butter. But how did they do that? How did they know it's the 19th Legion? Well, this article, let's just caveat this since you just mentioned uh, <laughs> citing articles and such. This is a news release based off of a press release, right? So right. it's already gone through a couple cycles. It's not an actual article per se, but they do hit the highlights of what they did. And basically, the the fundamental idea is that the Roman legions would reuse the same metal, right? Mm -hmm. So they would make their weapons and other tools and such. And when things had to, you know, got too damaged, they would melt them down and reuse that same stock of metal. So what happens is that the individual legions have kind of a fingerprint, a chemical fingerprint of each of their metals, which is interesting, um, I have a lot of questions around that that are not even <laughs> remotely tackled in this article. And again, I don't know a whole lot about Roman archaeology, so yeah. my questions are very naive. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I am kind of curious how how durable that that fingerprint is. Right? Does it stay that way for? years, decades? Does it slowly bleed in or out from local populations? Does, you know, at the disappearance of one legion, which is what this article is about, does another legion take over some of their medals? Do they do they scavenge the uh, the mm-hmm. battlefields? Is that even possible? Or if you've lost, are you not able to get there again? Right. So, so I'm really curious about the, the durability of these metallurgical fingerprints, these chemical fingerprints. But that's the basic premise of the articles that they've got these metallurgical fingerprints and they use it to try to identify the presence or weigh in actually on an argument that looks like it's been ongoing um, about the location of a particular battlefield. Yeah, I find it much like obsidian sourcing, right, that we do a lot in the West. And, you know, people are trying to find obsidian sources. They do chemical, essentially a fingerprint chemical analysis of that obsidian source. Then when you find an obsidian artifact and you can do some, uh, you can take a little piece of it and do that same analysis. You can you you can say with I mean pretty high certainty exactly where that came from because every volcano or volcanic activity that produces that obsidian is uh, is different. It just has different elements in the ground that that produce that. So along those same lines, 
yeah, the the metals that they're using. Because one thing you didn't mention was the implication is not not only do they reuse their the metals that they have, but they have to source their own metal, which is something that was just kind of glossed over in this. Like if they stand up a legion, what do they have to um, source their own food, source their own metal? Does like the state provide anything, right? Or is it just are they given stuff in Rome when they're first stood up? And then as they're conquering the world, you know, they don't go back to Rome for maybe years and, and they have to obviously keep up their stuff. So they have to source food. They have to source clothing. They have to source metal. So I would wonder about that fingerprint, to be honest with you, because you would think that they're, they're having to actually do a little bit of mining throughout if they're gone from the, you know, from home for too long, I would think, but I don't, again, I don't really know much about that either. Yeah, well, it makes sense to me that they would have to source their own stuff because everything can't be supplied, you know, from Rome all the time. So the knowledge, the wherewithal, some money to do things, I would expect would come mm-hmm. from the from Rome. But then the rest, the actual doing of it, has to be done much more locally. Certainly with things like yeah. food and clothing. But I'd never thought about it with metals. But in a way, it makes sense to me. Uh, it does get back into that same question I had about how distinctive those metal fingerprints are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the actual meat of this article then is that they they're looking at uh, the Varus battle where the Romans suffered a, a real crushing defeat in 9 <laughs> yeah. AD that decimated well, – that's the word that they've got in the article. I don't know if decimated is the right term here because that's something very specific for Romans. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> right. uh, destroyed, let's say, the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions. So there's a question – there's one site that's thought to be the location, but there's another site, this Calcris that is also thought to be. So they mm-hmm. have the metal fingerprints from this Calcris site that match the 19th Legion camp from a different location. And so they're right. saying that this Calcris site is definitely from that battle. And the, the, the debate is whether it's from that battle or if it's from a retaliatory strike uh, some years later that the Romans did. And their, mm-hmm. the crux of their argument is that it can't be from that retaliatory strike because it the medals there belong to the 19th Legion and the 19th Legion at that point did not exist anymore because it got defeated some years previous. Right. Uh, again, way too much in the weeds at that point for anything that I would be able to weigh in on. But I did think it was an interesting application of uh, of looking at metal fingerprints. And you know, when we go to break here, the next two articles are about something that we've thought about more and what you were discussing with the um with the obsidian, which is you know trying to find out where the metals are from. This is yeah. kind of a where the metals are from, but it's more like to whom they belong, which is right. to me a, a novel, different way of looking at this same question using a similar set of tools. Exactly, and that that's what I liked about it too. It was yeah, I don't, I didn't even know if they can really tell where it's from necessarily, like where the original metals were quarried. They were they were testing just to give you a little more details here. They were using mass spectrometry, and they sampled and analyzed about 550 different, well, they say samples. I don't know if they mean artifacts or, or samples of like multiple samples of one artifact, who knows, but from seven known Roman legion sites and in order to, I guess, put together this database, right? So they did that and it was on the brass and the bronze, by the way, um, the brass and bronze that they had, those artifacts. And yeah, that was, that's what led them to determine uh, what we've already mentioned. And I guess just a little bit of historical facts, it marked the end of the Roman presence in Germany. This battle did. <laughs> They're like, mm-hmm. you guys are done. Get out. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. So 
yeah, after that battle and after this area, the metal fingerprints so far discovered uh, leading back to the 19th, 19th Legion ceased to exist. Because presumably, once they created this database of, of uh, you know, Legion metal metallurgical fingerprints, they've tested everything, right? As much as they could get their hands on, probably. Mm-hmm. And after that, you know, have no more, no more uh, a presence of the 19th Legion, which is pretty definitive, I would say, uh, assuming they've got all these facts right. So, all right. Well, that's about it for that one. Uh, Paul, you got any more thoughts on this one? No, let's go to break and then come back and talk about things that are a little more traditional. Um, and I'll still have nothing important to say about them. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 193. Today, Chris and I are discussing uh, three different articles about archaeometallurgy. Did I get it right this time? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I think so. Uh, the second of these articles <laughs> is published in Science Advances, and the authors of it are Wayne Powell, Michael Fricchetti, Jamal Pollock, H. Arthur Bankoff, Goiko Bayamovich, Michael Johnson, Ryan Mather, Vince Piggott. That's the one who was down the hall from me. Michael Price. Uh, oh, and I didn't even notice this the first time through. Aslihan Yainer. I actually worked on one of her projects in 98 or 99 in Turkey. The title of the nice. project, of the paper rather, is Tin from the Uluburun Shipwreck Shows Small-Scale Commodity Exchange Fueled Continental Tin Supply Across Late Bronze Age Eurasia, which is a big mouthful, but it also hits a lot of a lot of interesting points that, uh, that extend beyond just metals here and have a lot to do with you know, craft production, trade networks, and mm-hmm. state control, and so on. And, you know, it's a very interesting article. It also gets into the weeds, into the certain things, uh, chemical properties or, or chemical compositions of metals that uh, I have no real way of assessing and statistical analyses that I have no real way of assessing. But again, it is interesting just the overall arc that the article takes and some of the conclusions that they draw because they sound to me entirely plausible. Now, that might be because I've got a couple of people who I respect that are authors on this article, but I also think that it's because they're right. Uh, Do you know anything about the Uluburun shipwreck? It's a very famous site. Honestly, I don't. This is the first I'd heard of it, so I'm, I'm glad you've heard of it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's um, it's it's um, middle uh, of the second millennium BCE, so 14th century shipwreck found off the southern coast of Turkey in I think 1982 by a sponge diver, and basically, it's the entire cargo of a ship that went down there. And it's filled with all sorts of various commodities, including some luxury raw materials. And this time period uh, is noted for the interrelation between the various kingdoms, between the Hittites, the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Egyptians uh, primarily. I'm not sure if the Mitanni were part of it. The Mycenaeans probably were. Anyhow, uh, they're like Mm -hmm. the Amarna letters in Egypt, which are in cuneiform. 
there are letters going back and forth between the royal families in, um, is that Assyria or Babylon? I should know that off the top of my head because this is something that's not too far removed from stuff I do and I've forgotten at the moment. doesn't matter. <laughs> Anyhow, and the Egyptian uh, royal families. And they're referring to each other as siblings. Now, they're not technically siblings, but it would be like calling somebody, you know, an old friend, my brother. Uh, right. And so this ship is showing the transshipment. The shipwreck has in its cargo goods that are from all around the Eastern Mediterranean. And it kind of reflects that same sort of relationship that's happening between these great houses that control these these huge territories across North Africa and the modern modern Middle East. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where they were not just people and relationships, but also various commodities, and in many ways controlled by the big states. And it's that control of the big states of these commodities that is a little bit undermined by this article, but in an interesting way. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, but what it shows looking at the sources of the tin in particular that was found here. Now, there's a huge, I think like 10 metric tons of uh, of, uh, of ingots yeah. that are found. Not all tin. There's tin, copper uh, ingots, but- um, yeah, they said that the the amount of tin ingots on there would have produced uh, about 11 metric tons of high quality bronze, uh, which is go. just great. And bronze is made out of tin and copper, tin being yeah. the, the less abundant element of the two. So very valuable. Absolutely. And um, and it's because of that lesser abundance of it. You know, there, there are copper sources spread out through the Zagros and, uh, and the Taurus and uh, Cyprus and other locations across the region, but there are fewer tin sources. Uh, and the tin sources that they have basically are in Anatolia and also ones out in Central Asia. And they find the fingerprints of these tin sources in the ingots you know, mm-hmm. in this one single shipwreck. So it's from the same snapshot in time. It's from the same cargo on the, this boat. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, they would have picked these up. Well, not obviously, but they presumably would have picked or possibly would have picked them up in, in various locations as it's doing its route, or maybe through whatever various means, wherever they stop to pick up you know, the metal the raw materials for the metals, uh, some of it came from Central Asia and some of it came from um, from Anatolia. But uh, but they're yeah. looking basically at the chemical compositions to find, like I said before, to find the, the sources of these. And they find these two sources. I'm wondering, I mean, I, again, you know a lot more about this uh, the shipwreck than I do because I, I, I'd only heard of it just with this. But do you know if they know why the ship went down by any chance? Because I'm, I'm wondering if it was just too heavy, <laughs> like had some rough seas or something and <laughs> broke apart. It sounds like it was really heavy. I know they could carry a lot. You know, they were they were capable of of putting a mm-hmm. lot of weight in these ships. But even so, man. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head if if they have a, a strong idea of why it went down. They do know that it did go down and it went down kind of on the slope underwater and spread out. I mean, the, if you look at the uh, at the maps from the project, from the recovery, uh, it, it's fascinating. You can see where things were in the hold, yeah. right? You know, because yeah. you know, you've got to distribute them, obviously, on a boat. You've got to distribute them so that you have balance. Right. But then you, there's also the tendency to, to collect like with like, you know, so I don't think you would have all your metal ingots on one side of the boat and, you know, capsize instantly. <laughs> but they do have these. And 
these great maps that you can see how things were laid out, but it all is very deep underwater and it's on a steep slope. So actually recovering that was a major feat, uh, a major archaeological feat in, in, in and of itself. And you know, now that they're doing these analyses of the materials, because we've got the capability of doing these chemical analyses now, th- this article gives us a lot, not just about the sourcing, but then, like I said, what makes it interesting to me is it starts talking about the societal structure then. Mm. And in a nutshell, a lot of the trade that was happening in the Eastern Mediterranean and Mesopotamia is controlled by these great houses, by the great kingdoms. But as you get out toward Central Asia, you don't have that same kind of centralized government. Uh, so it's being done on a different scale. It's being organized, and yet it can still transship these materials thousands of miles hmm. to get them to where the people yeah. want it, you know, to where the wealth is to purchase this tin. And so that in and of itself is interesting. And then the other one is that the other source that they find is actually fairly close. It's in Southern Anatolia. But these are places where the major mines had already been depleted. Mm -hmm. And so what they're finding is that these are kind of secondary sources, uh, river washes. They're basically scraping the bottom bottom of the barrel for the tin that they're getting from those areas. So 3,500 years ago, some relatively advanced modern civilizations for the time already realized they were having a natural resource problem and we still haven't figured out how to overcome it. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Uh, There are ones that would argue that natural resource problems are basically an underlying uh, 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 Yeah, problem. uh, An underlying problem of all human existence, right? Whether it's something simple not necessarily simple to solve, but simple to understand like water, or if it's something more complex because you need you know, the tin in order to make the bronze because the copper itself isn't a, mm-hmm. you know, a great material, but suddenly becomes much better once you add that tin and it becomes bronze. Or if it's you know, like other things that were found on the, sh- on the shipwreck, um, you know, ostrich shells. That doesn't, that's not a primary material for anything yeah. that you're using day to day, but that's part of what's going back and forth amongst these elites that are trading with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there are glass ingots there that um, glass at that time would have been a fairly elite material. It sure. wasn't you know, just a commodity like we have nowadays, but there are glass ingots on that ship. And there are all sorts of other different raw materials uh, or partially processed materials that, that were being transshipped on that boat. And so again, it, it serves as a little snapshot in time of that. But now this article has expanded it out in, uh, in a direction that I wouldn't have expected when I started reading. Reading it, I wouldn't have expected yeah. it to go in that direction. You know, I've never worked in that area. I've only, I've worked in, uh, you know, Old of Gorge in Africa and the United States, right? That's pretty much it. But in neither mm-hmm. locations did I ever find anything like glass ingots. And that actually reading about that really had me thinking because I never really thought about transporting like raw glass. It's just not something that was really done here in the United States. You know, the glass manufacturers would, would source it and, and create their, create their glass and create their bottles that they would need, you know, pretty much on mm-hmm. site. And if they were doing any sort of transporting of, of, you know, like a glass ingot, then, then it was just, it was really short distances, short enough that, you know, I've never heard of any evidence of something like that being found in transit, so to speak. So I'm wondering with your work in those areas, was that a really common, relatively common thing about that time to, to 
you know, create these glass ingots and then sell those rather than just process them into the glass objects that they need to be, you know, on site? Or was this, do you think this was more of a, a luxury item and, and it's like a one in a million you'd find on a shipwreck? Um, I'm guessing here, but I believe that it's not entirely uncommon because I think I've seen these same kinds of ingots um, Hmm. at various other excavations, at various other sites okay. across the Middle East. But, you know, earlier things, we find raw materials being transported, you know, lapis and carnelian and such being transported from Central Asia to Mesopotamia where it gets worked into its final product. We don't right. very often have the finished good. Now, we may have some things like some various uh, serpentine or soapstone bowls that may have been made in, in the Zagros hmm. that then got transported as finished objects into uh, into Mesopotamia. But for the mo most part, I believe, oh, carnelian beads. There are certain kinds of carnelian beads that were probably from the Indus Valley um, okay. and processed incompletion there and then transshipped across to uh to mesopotamia but that's a small thing and i kind of wonder if you know it's, it's certainly going to be a mix whether you you send the finished product or you send the raw materials uh, but i kind of wonder if the size and scale of the work that has to be done because when we talk about the the copper and the tin for smelting and we talk about the uh, the glass for glass making those are things that have to be done at a particular scale and with a particular technical technological know-how to have the kilns to have the furnaces to do those things so maybe under certain conditions it's uh, it's just more efficient to get you know to sell your raw materials to somebody down the road because they're the one that knows how to do it rather than you right. having to do it yourself and then send the finished product I don't know. Yeah, I'm just, that does uh, make sense. Wildly speculating yeah. here. <laughs> right. Well, just to get into the science of it just a little bit here and pull something from the article. The researchers used lead isotope, trace element, and tin isotope analysis to determine where these ores were from. And we've mentioned that. And and that was, I don't know if we mentioned the, the ratios there, but I guess uh, one third of the tin ingots, tin ingots were found at Uluburun. Ulubur, how do you say that? Uluburun? Uluburun? Yeah, Uluburun. <laughs> Uluburun, right. I got to get that right. Uluburun, um, which is the place where the near where the wreck was found. And then the remaining two thirds were the um, the Taurus Mountains of Turkey. So uh, and I guess it was the, the largest and most securely dated collection ever to found. It sounds like it was largest because it was the largest shipwreck ever found with this amount in it. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. No, that's why it's know. such a famous site is because it is it yeah. is the mostest of the mostest in terms of uh, of a shipwreck site like this. Yeah, and I'm wondering why why now, right? If this was discovered in the early '80s, like why are they just getting around to doing this kind of analysis now? Is it is it? Do you think it's the inaccessibility of it? They just haven't maybe brought up enough, and then, you know, in order to be able to do this kind of analysis, I wonder. Um, I honestly don't know. You know, I do see a couple uh, a couple Turks on this uh, on this uh, this paper. A couple authors yeah. are Turkish, and so maybe getting the right know how in Turkey because Turkey mm. is. Um, has been very defensive of making sure that that Turks are on archaeological projects or leading them and making it difficult sure. for people who aren't Turkish to get on these projects or lead them in particular. Uh, so maybe their presence that opened this up, it may be that uh, something changed administratively because you know these, as we'll get into in the next article, the chemical analyses are somewhat destructive of the objects. You have to take a sure. sample out of it. Right, so yeah. it may be that the the laws changed, and that they couldn't, you know, ten years ago, 
drill into the back of one of these ingots, but they decided that, you know what, we've got enough of them. Let's do this in the name of science. I honestly, again, I'm just speculating wildly. I have no idea why it would take this long. I don't know how long any of these studies actually take. You know, yeah. I do know that for years, there'd be people working on the same project on the same sets of materials down that hall from me in Masca. Uh, and it wasn't mm. because they were slacking off or it wasn't because they didn't have access to the materials. It was because it just took that long to get the work done. Mm. Right. Well, we definitely have those kinds of uh, constraints over here in the United States as well when we are working on artifacts that are, uh, you know, originally belonging to a certain tribe. And if that tribe has a has a good presence, and, and a lot of them do, especially in the West Coast of the United States and in the, in the Northeast a little bit, if that tribe has a, a good hold on the archaeological resources in the area, they have a good tribal government, they're very well formed, and they have their own laws and regulations, then we see this a lot, again, in the American West, where you're not allowed to uh, do samples on, say, obsidian, uh, as we mentioned earlier. The artifacts are going to be you know, documented, and then if they were collected at all, returned back to the tribe for repatriation or whatever they, they choose to do with it. So mm-hmm. that's, um, you know, that's pretty common, I would say. So I could see the same thing happening in other parts of the world, for sure, where yeah. maybe the, maybe the uh, I don't know, the sentiment towards the, the site or something like that changes, or new people come into power, you know, it, it's just, you know, things change, so... All right. Well, let's go from there and find out what you can do with a portable laser because it sounds real Star Trek and I'm really hoping for that, but it's not. (laughs) Back in a minute. Welcome back to episode 193 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we are talking about three news articles that all have to do with archaeological metallurgy. And that is a mouthful of words to say for sure. Now, this one is from Science Direct, which is you know, an outlet for lots of things, one of which is the Journal of Archaeological Science. We have the link to the actual journal article that we'll put in the show notes. And the article is Portable Laser Ablation Sheds Light on Early Bronze Age Gold Treasures in the Old World. New Insights from Troy, Poliochni, I don't know how to say that, and Related Finds. <laughs> Poliochni? <laughs> I think it's Poliochni. No, I don't know. The authors of this one are Moritz Numerich, Christoph Schwal, Nicole Lockoff, Kostas Nikolentsos, Eleni Konstantini. Oh, this is a tough one. <laughs> Konstantinidisivridi. Sorry, Eleni, I really apologize for butchering your name there. Uh, Massimo yeah. Cotrato, Barbara Horries, and Ernst Perniska. And I'm just interjecting here quickly. The other two articles, well, one was just a news piece. The other one was an open access article. And this Mm -hmm. one here is an Elsevier journal. So you're going to need to get access through whatever means you normally get access if you want to see the entirety of it. Well, I will tell you, though, if you um, if you click on the article, you can see the abstract. You can see mm-hmm. a lot of stuff without looking at it. And you can see the authors. And there's yes. a little email symbol next to that. And nine times out of 10, if you just email the author directly or you see their name and you just look them up online, they can't be that hard to find. Uh, email them directly and say, hey, um, I was really interested in this article. Article, Can you email me a copy? I've heard so many people who regularly write journal articles say, just email me and I'll send you a copy. And they mm-hmm. will absolutely 
absolutely do that. So, I mean, they make no money on this, right? It's paywalled for us, not for them. They, this right. money goes straight to Elsevier. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the journal articles are not paid for. Otherwise, you'd have a, you know, some, some biased research potentially if they were paying articles, paying authors to write these things. So, so don't feel like you're, you're doing them a disservice by just asking them directly for it. Please do. No, and they may be interested, excited to know that you've heard about it and that you're interested in it. I know that Mm -hmm. I certainly would be if somebody emailed me directly, say, hey, how come I can't get access to your paywalled article? Can you send me a copy? Even if I couldn't, even if I had an article that somebody wanted to read. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, no, I I would be thrilled to know that somebody heard about it and was interested in learning more. So so definitely try that if this floats your boat. Now, this article to me was a little interesting in that it it felt to me like two separate articles. The uh, the first was about this technique that they're using, which is way cool. And then the second was the results of the uh, – they interpolate from the technique. Not unlike what we saw in the previous one, in the previous article that we discussed, but somehow the disjuncture between the first half and the second half of this article felt starker to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So a little bit of background. So in 1873, Heinrich Schliemann found a hoard of gold, silver and copper artifacts that he called King Priam's treasure. And you might recognize that name is named for the King of Troy who ruled uh, around the 13th century BCE. It turns out, though, that this collection is actually from an early Bronze Age culture that existed from between 2500 and 2000 BCE. So much earlier than originally well then when he found it you know he made an assumption mm-hmm. he didn't do any testing on it of course and and how did they figure all that out well they melted it with a laser which i think is really cool and that's what ablation means that the laser ablation they basically ablation is a fancy word for melted <laughs> <laughs> yeah scraping off of <laughs> yeah. I, I actually i was looking at laser ablation uh, after seeing that in the title going does that mean what i think it means and found a whole bunch of like portable laser ablation machines for various cosmetic uh, uses, yeah, like ah, go to a plastic surgeon kind of cosmetic uses, not mm, something you do right. at home. And also, I came across one site that had a laser ablation machine that they used for. Well, in the examples they had on their video on their website, was removing rust <laughs> from metal surfaces, and uh, this. Yeah. Uh, Oh my goodness! This was frightening. <laughs> <laughs> it was about a inch. Uh, you know, they don't have a scale in there, but I'm guessing it's about an inch wide beam, and it just burns the rust off of the uh, the uh, <laughs> the metal as they're going over it, as they're passing over it with it. Jeez. But that's not what we're talking about in this guy. We're, we're somewhere in between, I think, or maybe actually down less than the um, than the cosmetic use, because what they're doing is a minimally invasive invasive technique. You know, I mentioned in the last segment about um, the possibility that was the the fact that you have to take a sample from the metals in order to to run your chemical tests on them. This here, they are still taking a sample, but the sample that they take with the laser is so tiny, so little itty bitty, (laughs) that they could do it on these gold artifacts that had previously been off limits. Yeah, and it's crazy because it says right in the article it's a it makes a 120 micrometer cone, and if you don't know what that is, just like I couldn't visualize it, they say it's about the width of two of your hairs. And, and I like just you know we need to do a whole somebody needs to do a whole study on on equative measurements because if it's smaller than a hair or around the size of a hair, then it's 
talked about in terms of the width of your hair, right? Lots of things are. If it's anything over like a hundred feet, maybe a hundred yards, then it's talked about in football fields. <laughs> I don't know what other countries do, but like American football fields, like everything. Oh, it's about 15 football fields wide or some ridiculous number. Like, how can I visualize and, that? But anyway. And how big was hail before people invented golf? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, I don't know, something sized hail. I can't, we just don't have a word for it. Jeez. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So they they sampled 26 artifacts. And like Paul said, they were uh, locked away at the uh, National Museum in Athens. They were considered too precious to move. They didn't want to take them to a lab or something like that. So they took this portable laser ablation tool and took it to the National Museum in Athens and basically used them to, you know, do the little micrometer cones in the laser ablation. And I wonder, you know, since it's, since it's a device right there, I wonder you, you looked up the laser ablation tools themselves. Do you know if this is maybe giving like instantaneous results or is it something that has to be analyzed? No, it's not giving instantaneous results. What they're doing is they're taking this machine. So people have used laser ablation before for the same technique. What, what the, the novelty of this one, what they write about is that they have a portable one. So before yeah. what we would have to do is you would have to send the object to the lab that could do this. And that's off limits for a variety of reasons. Yeah. One of the big ones, and I know this because my wife is often tasked with, uh, with escorting objects from her museum, the Met, to, uh, to mm -hmm. other museums around the world when they're on loan. Oh, yeah. There is a lot of paperwork and a lot of insurance and a lot of hassle. It's a very <laughs> expensive process, especially, I would think, if you're trying to send something gold uh, right. <laughs> to get right. them from country A to country B or even within a country to move them from the museum to uh, wherever the lab is. It's, it's, a, it's a tedious process. Then the other big problem that they mentioned in the article is that you're limited by the size of the object. That is that beyond a certain size, you can't easily move it so that you can send it to the lab to use the laser ablation to, uh, to, to sample it. But what they did instead is they have this, uh, this portable machine that they took to the object. And that's why they were allowed to finally do these samples. Well, that and like you said, the, uh, the, the how tiny the sample is that it's basically yeah. invisible. So they take that and they vaporize a little bit of the metal and they mm -hmm. suck that up into a tube and a filter of some kind. And that's what goes back to the lab then for the, uh, for the mass spectrometry. Right. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So it's not all a unified, it all happens at once with this gizmo that they're bringing, you know, to the museum to check with. Mm -hmm. it, the hard part, well, maybe not the hard part, but the bulk of the analysis or the the bulk of the technique that's applied to the sample happens sometime later in some place later. We just need handheld mass spectrometry. That's really what we need here. So, well, that you know, exists. shouldn't be too hard. That exists. That's, really? I thought they were massive machines. Um, I could have sworn that. There are some handheld ones nowadays. I, you now I'm to might be up. thinking, you might be thinking of portable X-ray fluorescence. I may well be. Yes. So yeah, don't believe a word I say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, 
so when they did when they finally did their mass spectrometry on either a hand-sized device or a room-sized device we're not sure but when they did it <laughs> they found high con- high concentrations of tin palladium and platinum in in the samples and i guess for people who know things about gold this indicates which i also thought was super interesting but this indicates that the gold was found in essentially washed river samples in the form of gold dust so this was panned for essentially i mean i don't think they panned for it but you know you can imagine somebody doing whatever their equivalent of panning for gold was and they found this gold and then you know had to uh had to refine it in some way uh to make actual objects out of it which means it would have been an incredible amount of work to actually source all this stuff so you can kind of think about the the i guess the cultural effort behind that i mean cultural in the form of just like people the actual effort behind collecting you know gold dust in order to make actual gold objects and not just like a couple of them a lot of them so mm-hmm. you know this is probably a relatively common practice way easier than mining right i mean back back in the day you could probably find gold veins peeking out of the surface but i imagine those have all been found <laughs> in the world you know i mean as erosion happens maybe more could be found but i would imagine a lot of the visible precious metal veins have probably been you know mined out by previous cultures uh, since we've been mining those types of things for i mean well three thousand five thousand years or more right so anyway they did this to try to figure out also not like the origin of the gold but like where it came from and they actually matched some of these samples to the royal tombs in ur uh in mesopotamia which you were just knocking at the door of uh, a few months ago <laughs> yeah just hanging out at as one does <laughs> yeah exactly you went to the ur coffee shop didn't you yeah there you go nice nice yeah no so they uh, they look at it and um uh and there are some like forms of uh beads these kind of like flat discs they have a particular term i can't think of it off the top of my head right now but it's mentioned in the yeah, article that they um that are found in various locations across the middle east mm-hmm. and across anatolia um and so they're looking at those they also look at there's a particular design that is um is four spirals kind of not necessarily interlocked but if you can imagine like the spiral on oh <laughs> If you can imagine a spiral, this is great podcasting right here. Uh, Four interlock spirals. It's a common motif or not totally uncommon motif in jewelry uh, across the Mm -hmm. region. So they look at these because uh, the assumption has been where you have these things that are so formally similar that they represent, you know, at least a transmission of an idea, if not the actual objects between these areas. But with the ability to actually sample the material that they're made out of. And back to that first article, the fingerprint of those materials, Mm -hmm. you can then make the argument that they are in fact related. They did come from the same place. We might not necessarily know where that place is unless we can successfully fingerprint where the, the the materials came from, which is not something that they're actually trying to do in this one. But we can say that, you know, site A and site B have gold that came from the same place. So these objects that are very similar in these two sites were produced at the same place. We don't know if it's you know site A and transshipped to site B or vice versa or some third place that's not in there. But it's a uh, it's still you know interesting to know that, that that this is a possibility now and another way of analyzing these things instead of just a strictly art historical sort of uh, formal analysis. Yeah, I mean they do mention in the article just briefly. I don't think they really get into it that the gold from Troy 
Poliachny and Ur, uh, for that matter, um, all likely came from Georgia uh, as the original source of that gold. So some of it that they they, they have a, a yeah. number of different sources or possible sources, um, all of which are you know to be further explored. But yeah, it's that's kind of cool what they do. But again, like I said, yeah. this uh, this article then becomes two separate articles in my mind. It becomes the first one of this cool new technique that they can do, and then <laughs> the second article is what they do with it. Uh, obviously, yeah. the second flows from the first. But again, somehow reading it, they just felt like it was two entirely distinct discussions. Maybe because the first one was very technical. Yeah. In terms of the machinery being used. And the second one was technical more in the uh, stats being applied to results. Well, I do kind of appreciate that, though, because we we have discussed a lot of articles on this show that are just they're they're really a subset of a larger body of research. But the article we're talking about literally is talking about the technique. It's it's not even really mentioning results. Right. It's talking about, hey, we tried this new thing and it either worked or didn't work for archaeology. Right. And that's what it is. But I, I somewhat appreciate as we're moving away from, you know, as you mentioned with Marco in the last episode, and we mentioned a lot of times we're moving away from the term digital archaeology because all archaeology is digital. You know, they need to mention the the techniques that they used in this in this research, but also they're going to get into it, right? They're like, this isn't just about the technique we used because, you know, laser ablation is really nothing new. It's just, this is what we did. This is what we used. And then here's what we learned from it. So I guess I kind mm-hmm. of appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, any other thoughts on this research? No, I mean, it's interesting and uh, and it's always fun. That, that's one of the things I enjoy about podcasting with you is that uh, I would not have picked up any of these articles myself to read. Uh, but <laughs> right. you would pick them up. No, seriously. It's, it's, you know, it's like I said at the start, it's, it's a topic that I find interesting that it exists, but not interesting enough for me to dig in on. And so I had mm-hmm. to dig in a little bit here. And uh, what I learned was just of the, the, the variety of ways that, other researchers doing stuff that is different than I would do were thinking about the materials and the results and analyzing and theorizing in ways that wouldn't be native to the way I think. And so it's, it's always kind of fun to, uh, to see these things and, uh, and think a little bit outside of your own head. Well, yeah, and that is obviously one of the, one of the primary reasons I would say behind this podcast is to, for any archaeologists that happen to be listening or other researchers for that matter to take a look at your own collections and the own your own projects that you're working on and see if maybe there's something you can learn from this that you either didn't know existed or hadn't really thought of in this way and that you can apply to your own research if you've done that for this topic or anything else we've talked about on the architect podcast or I'm going to try it one more time. Last time of the show for you playing a drinking game this is it the archaeological <laughs> metallurgy uh, met- archaeological metallurgical techniques. <laughs> if you're a if you're an archaeological metallurgist, how about that one? Then uh, you know, contact me, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, where you can find more of our contact info on our show notes. And then you know, we'll bring you on to talk a little more specifically about it. It makes me think of Tristan, the co-founder of the APN. His original education was in archaeology and chemistry, uh, so archaeochemistry and doing different things with that, which obviously is different, but not all that different. <laughs> so, yeah, much more related. Uh, Maybe it would have been better to have him on today. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. As usual, the links to all these articles and a little bit extra will be in the show notes, and we will see you in two weeks with more fun stuff. All right, Chris. Well, thanks. This has been fun. I think I learned something new. It's a great way to start off the new year. Thanks, Paul. 
Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.